0: We are coming this morning to the preaching of God's Word. We're looking at John chapter 4. And we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We have most recently been looking at Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well and that great, uh, that great interaction of the Savior bringing this sinful woman to a place of um, saving grace, a place where she realized she was satisfied. I noted last week that the water bucket, the water pot, was a symbol of her life and that symbol, as Jesus pointed out, was that she was trying to satisfy herself with men. And, and the ESV, someone pointed out to me, he said, last week he said, she went to tell the men of the city that she had found the Savior. And the ESV says the people, but actually in Greek it says the men. And I noted that there, there's even likelihood that she went back to the men she had been trying to satisfy herself with. And she tells them, I've been satisfied by a man, the God-man. She has come to find the living waters, and that pot, that water pot is the the symbol that she had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and so we're picking up this morning in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27, and we're going to read down to verse 45, and now having gone back to um, the people, and we're, we're recapping what we said here, John says, just then His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went away into the town and said, Literally to the men, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they, too, had gone to the feast. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1747... Samuel Davies uh, who is known affectionately as the Apostle to Virginia. He was uh, the first one to bring Presbyterianism to the South. Um, He had come from the North and he was ministering in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia planting churches and and really bringing the Great Awakening and many of you have maybe heard of Samuel Davies. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he was the greatest preacher in American history that you may not have ever heard of. Uh, He would go on to become the fourth president of Princeton University, then the College of New Jersey, immediately after Jonathan Edwards died of a smallpox vaccination. And Davies um, in 1747 was 24 years old, and he was not married for quite one year, and his wife was pregnant. And his wife um, of not quite one year died uh, in miscarriage and he wrote in his diary about this great and painful loss of losing his wife and his unborn child and Then Davies went on to say what else do I have to do? But to give all of my strength and zeal even in this feeble condition in which I, I'm, I find myself To serving the Lord and preaching the gospel. I fear that my time is also drawing near Davies would then commit himself to that work in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. He would bring the Great Awakening with him. Many would be converted under his ministry. Um, Davies would die at 37 years old. And yet, a 100 years after Samuel Davies had ministered in Virginia, um, there were other theologians in the Presbyterian Church that were passing through the Shenandoah Valley, and they would find pockets of these really exceptional Black theologians who had been descendants of slaves and They asked them how they had become Reformed theologians and they told the story that Davies would go over to England He would come back and bring reformed theological works, and he would give them to them And even a hundred years later fruit was being born from the evangelistic zeal of this man who had lost his wife and child and yet committed himself to pressing on in gospel ministry now I tell you that story because here, the Lord Jesus, uh, He is tired. He is worn. He had come to the well wanting a drink. He had come and had found the woman of the well there. He had then expended His energy in pursuing her evangelistically. He had seen her come to saving faith in Himself. He had been encouraged by what had happened. I, I think it's fair to say He had been invigorated by her coming to know him, this Gentile woman. And, and, and then she had gone off, and, and he began to see the men of the city coming out to him. And as his disciples come back to him, and they come bringing food, and he's in a feeble and a frail situation, the Lord Jesus teaches us what it means to have one eye for the glory of God and the work that the Father had entrusted to him for the evangelistic ministry into the world he had been sent. Um, you know, this is, this is a remarkable passage because this is the first revival that we read about in the Gospels, and it doesn't happen among the Jews. It happens among a really unlikely people, and yet this is a citywide revival. This is a great awakening, and it happens because the Lord Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he was resolute in giving himself to that calling that he had been given. I want us to consider here just two things this morning. I want us to consider the evangelistic zeal of Jesus. And then I want us to consider the evangelistic instruments of Jesus. The evangelistic zeal of Jesus and the evangelistic instruments of Jesus. Well notice the the disciples have come back and the woman has left her water jar. It seems that all of those things are happening simultaneously. They maybe saw her go. They they definitely have seen the water pot and, and they have they have come back and and uh, notice that the woman goes into the city and notice verse 30 that the men, they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. So everything is converging at this well. And remember, we said last week that this well is is reminiscent of those wells where the patriarchs found their brides in the Old Testament. Here's the heavenly bridegroom, and he has found his bride at... at the well. And now more is going to happen at the well. Now, now the city people are coming out to see him. They've they've seen this woman, they've heard what she said, they've seen her life change. They're they're now coming out, perhaps in droves, and and yet the disciples, and this is very important, the disciples do not share the same zeal that Jesus shares. Um, in fact, the first thing that happens and Jesus' evangelistic zeal at the well is really directed at instructing the disciples because so often we are just like them. I remember when I was in seminary reading about Samuel Davies. I was 24, 25 years old. I might have even been married one year, and I thought, if my wife of one year, an unborn child, died, I would probably turn in on myself. I think it's safe to say that's what the better part of us would do. Um, The disciples were not zealous for the evangelism of those around them. They, they, they They wanted to take a break from ministry. Now, let me say this this morning, two things, very important. We can busy ourselves so much in ministry that we're not good to anyone. Um, Remember, Jesus often pulls away. He pulls away from the crowds. He doesn't doesn't give himself to the tyranny of the urgent. Sometimes churches programatize people so much that they have no time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, Now that's one error and, and we're susceptible to that. The other error, which is maybe more common in our day, is that we don't want to give ourselves as zealously to the work that God would have us do in our short lives here as we ought to. The disciples were indicative of that at this point. They come back, all they're thinking about is food. Um, their minds are right where the woman at the well's mind was, right? She was just thinking about earthly water. They're just coming back thinking about earthly food. And, and you know, why hasn't the Lord eaten something? And, and notice they, they, say, they, they say to him, Rabbi, eat. Um, that's really all their minds are fixated on. It's earthly things at this point. And, and notice Jesus' response. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, at this point, the disciples don't understand the spiritual language. They don't understand that Jesus is using earthly things to teach heavenly principles. And um, as I noted, this is as much about Jesus as it is about what Jesus is doing to instruct his disciples and then by way of application, us. Um, I have often thought about this verse, how many times when you're tired, you're weary, you're, you're burdened, um, if you remember the Lord Jesus saying, I have food to eat, of which you do not know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, how that drives you forward in ministry, how that helps us not grow weary in well-doing. Um, this is not our home. We ought not get too comfortable here. And, and how important that we remember that. Notice, notice here, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, having said that, there is something here that is unique about Jesus that's not about us. When Jesus says, I have food to eat, and my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, he is not simply saying the food that God wants us to eat is obeying him. That's not what Jesus is saying. It is true that God redeems us so that we would be and want to be and desire to be obedient people. Jesus is speaking uniquely about his messianic ministry. He's saying, I have food, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And how do we know that that's unique? Because in chapter 17, when Jesus prays to the Father, he says, My Father, he has the cross in view. He knows what he's come to do. He's going to come to keep the law for his people. He's going to atone for them on the cross. He's going to be the sacrifice for their sins. And he says, Father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And then when he hangs on the cross, he says, It is finished. So, from this statement here, my food is to finish the work he's given me to do, to him praying, Father, I have finished what you have given me, to him hanging on the cross and finishing it, Jesus is saying one and the same thing, and that means two things. One, there is only one Savior who can do this work and who can eat this food, and that is the Savior that we need for our souls. And number two, what we learned from this is that Jesus understood why he came into the world. And as I noted last week, nothing was going to stop him from doing what his father had given him to do. And nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling what his father had called him to do. And part of that was seeking and saving the lost everywhere he went as he went to the cross. And so here, no less than on the cross, Jesus is carrying out the purpose for which the Father had brought him into the world. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican commentator, says this. This is so beautiful. Listen. He that sat by the well of Samaria and found it meat and drink to do good to an ignorant soul is always in one mind. Right now, high in heaven at God's right hand, he still delights to save sinners and still approves zeal and labor in the cause of God. The work of the missionary and evangelist may be despised and ridiculed, but while man is mocking, Christ is well-pleased and Christ is working. Isn't that awesome? The same Christ that sat at the well is even at the right hand of the Father doing the very thing he was doing at the well. That's why when the word is preached and the gospel is preached, we can have confidence that Christ is doing the same thing he was doing in the flesh. That's why something as seemingly foolish as listening to a monologue about a book that was written so long ago bears so much fruit because the risen and reigning Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the same evangelistic zeal he had then he has now. Now, I want you to notice this. There is secondly in this passage, there are evangelistic instruments being used. Yes, the Lord Jesus is an instrument in God's hand. He is God in the flesh, but he is also as man, an instrument in God's hand. You know the old saying, I believe it was David Livingston, uh, Liv- Livingston the, um, the missionary said God uh, only had one son and he sent him to be a missionary. Um, Jesus was a missionary par excellence. Um, And we've seen that. He is one of the instruments. He is the one fueling his own evangelistic ministry in the world. And yet, the woman at the well becomes an instrument of revival. This is absolutely remarkable. Um, This woman has no seminary training. She has no uh, pure uh, biblical upbringing that we know of. She has lived her life in sexual immorality. She has has given herself over to hedonism and selfish pleasure. She is the least likely person to be used by Jesus if we are going to say who is a likely candidate to be used as an instrument of evangelism. And yet, the early church father, Origen, called her the Apostle of the Samaritans. John Calvin, in his day, said, you know, many try to downplay the usefulness of this woman, and they say, you know, it's only given to men to preach. Well, she didn't become a minister of the gospel. She became a faithful testimony to the Lord Jesus, carrying the gospel by evidence of her life as an instrument of grace. And Calvin goes on to say, and the Lord Jesus would have it no other way. In fact, elsewhere, when speaking about Phoebe, um, the servant of the church, uh, Calvin says that, John, that uh, the Apostle Paul would have thought it unconscionable not to have such a sister in Christ serving alongside him for the sake of the gospel. This woman, a Gentile woman, is the first one that Jesus is use, uses to bring about revival in a Gentile land. Now, that's remarkable. She has just been converted, and now she's an instrument of grace and an instrument of revival. Now, how does she do it? How does she become the instrument of revival? Well, notice that, that um, she has gone to the men of the city. Notice verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's all she says. Uh, Ryle, again, notes she doesn't say, come, believe. She could have said that. She says, come, see. Come and see. Ryle says that's a softer and more gentle way by which more were drawn to come and see who Christ is. By the way, when you witness to others just saying, come and see who Christ is, can be a very powerful thing. That's not unfaithful. There are some really hard Reformed folks that are going to tell you, no, we don't use this kind of language, we do this. Well, Jesus put this in the Bible. so I'm going to go with this, as this is a good tactic in witnessing to people. You can say, come and see who Jesus is. This is why we talk about Christianity Explored. It's okay, that's not not unfaithful. She says, come and see. Ryle says she enters into no argument. She only asks the men to come and see. He said this, after all, is often the best way of dealing with souls. An invitation to come and make trial of the gospel often produces more effect than the most elaborate arguments in support of doctrines. Most men do not want their reason convinced so much as their will bent and their conscience aroused. So all she says is, come and see. And then she uses her own life as a testimony. They knew what kind of woman this was. Remember, she came to the well at noon because she was a woman of ill repute. She was ashamed of her life. Certainly, the five men she had been with knew what she was like. No doubt, people in the city knew what she was like. And yet, she goes back to them and she acknowledges this man knew, and she acknowledges that sinful part of her life. Isn't that interesting? She, she says, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. She she acknowledges that she's been changed. She's been convicted of her sin. She, she acknowledges that there's one who knows her through and through, that nothing is hidden. She's no longer trying to cover herself or or make excuses or Or evade the crowd. She goes now back into the city, and her life becomes an evidence. So often, by the way, a changed life becomes one of the greatest evangelistic instruments by which Jesus draws others to himself. I remember as a younger Christian, um, one of my best friends had met a girl that I had dated before I was a Christian, and she had seen what I was posting on I think it was Facebook, maybe it was MySpace, you know, at that time. But, um, and, and she said, she told my best friend, she said, I don't know how this can be the same Nick. Your life, if it's been transformed, will necessarily be an instrumental cause of showing others who you have met and what has happened to you and what Jesus has done in your life. Now, if your life has not been changed, that won't be the case. But every transformed life is one that Jesus then uses as an instrument of evangelism in gathering others. And then notice in 29, this woman also identifies him. She knows that there is a Christ, a prophet, a priest, and a king, a Messiah. One who was going to come and save the world. She she acknowledges that that's their need. She says to them, "Can, can this be the Christ? Come and see. And then I want, us, I, want, I want us to notice here in a second that the men of the city also become instruments, even though they become the, the objects of Christ's redemption and, and the revival that happens in Samaria. Jesus uses this woman in the lives of these men and these people in this city, and then they collectively, their lives being changed by Christ collectively fuels this reformation and this revival around them. And, you know, I, I want to point this out to you. Sinclair Ferguson made this point. He talks about the longings of this woman, the longings of the men who are converted in Samaria. And, and here's what he says. He says, God doesn't need the spiritual longings of his people the presence of Jesus to bring about revival. So he doesn't need your longing for the presence of Jesus to bring about revival, but Ferguson says he uses that spiritual longing of his people for the presence of Jesus to bring about a revival among those who do not have a spiritual longing for Jesus. So what he's saying is even though Jesus could have simply done it all himself, even though he could have limited it just to ministers of the gospel, standing and proclaiming the gospel, God in his wisdom determined to give you a spiritual longing for Jesus that those who do not have that spiritual longing would see, and they would say there's something about him or about her that I don't have. And they would say, I want that. I know that was true for me at 24. I met the guy who is my best friend now, and he had been converted out of a lifestyle very much like mine. And I met him in Greenville, South Carolina. My parents wanted to introduce him to me. I think they wanted him to trick me into coming to church, and um, it didn't work immediately. But um, his name is Stephen, and I remember Stephen saying to me, he said, You know, everything I was doing, I was drinking from those broken cisterns, and and he said, and there is more satisfaction in Jesus. And I saw something in his eyes that I have not seen in most Christians' eyes. I saw something in his eyes that I don't see in most Christians' eyes. I saw a real spiritual longing and satisfaction for Christ. And I remember thinking in my unregenerate state, whatever he has, I want it. Because I didn't have it. And you see that's what's happened this woman they've seen something in her and they go out and and they see something's happened to this woman and and jesus has used her life and now notice they come out notice this many samaritans verse 39 from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me all that i ever did so when the samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them now They have a spiritual longing. Now they want him to stay with them. Now they want to hear him for themselves. And then notice, notice he stayed two days. Can you imagine the questions they must have been hurling at him and the things they must have been hearing? This is not Israel. This is Samaria. This is Jesus' first foray into Gentile lands, taking the gospel outside of Israel and, and staying with these people and ministering to them And notice verse 41, many more believe because of his word. Isn't that how it works when someone tells you about Christ and you start to listen to them, but then you read the word for yourself and you hear the voice of the son. You hear the voice of the good shepherd. And you believe because you hear his voice. And notice, notice they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Now, there are are four things that Ferguson calls basic life signs of a revived community, four marks that are life signs. So you need to ask yourself, do I have these? life signs. And as a church, do we have these life signs of a revived community? Number one, they want to have Jesus with them. Isn't that interesting? They, they go out, they're begging him to be with them. They want, they, they will not go through their life without having him with them. That's the first evidence. By the way, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections, He did it because during the Great Awakening, there was a lot of religious fervor and excitement, you know, just like there can be today with megachurches and tent revivals and, you know, third wave charismatic stuff, and everybody gets all excited about everything, and people are like, look at, look at what's happening, this is so awesome, and, and Edwards understood that a lot of times that stuff's just counterfeit, and that there would be Marks of true revival. He was leading the Great Awakening and he was telling people, hey, don't get too excited. These are the marks. This is what we're looking at. The first mark of revival, people want to have Jesus with them. Number two, they want to learn to trust Jesus. These men have listened to the woman, but then they come back and they believe because they've heard his word. And they tell her now we believe not because of your word, but because we've heard him. They want to trust him. They have a longing to grow in their trust of Christ. And then number three, they want to be taught by him. They ask him to stay with them so they can be instructed. When revival happens, the people can't get enough. You now, if if we get tired of hearing the word of God, then revival is certainly not happening among us. Because when it is, the people can't get enough. Um, they want more. And then the fourth, they want to tell others about Jesus. There's that natural impulse from the woman at the well and from the men of the city. There's, There's a real longing to talk about him. And notice the men say this. Notice this. Verse 42, we ourselves know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They are making that great confession. They are they are proclaiming who Christ is. This is the Savior of the world. I want to ask you this morning, when you consider, when you consider your Christian life and where you are at present, um, and, and you ask the question, you know, what things, what things would I consider to be my food? Now, I, I was convicted by this this week. Some of you know I'm a foodie, I love good food, and I was thinking, but I should be known I should be mo- known for having the same mind that Christ had here, that our food should be a desire to see the salvation of those around us and to see God saving sinners through Christ um, what 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 are those things that? characterize how we spend our time how do how do we deal with and here's a question you can ask yourself you know none of us really like to be interrupted in life Jesus gets interrupted at the well and then he gets interrupted by the samaritans how do we deal with those those opportunities to witness to others in which we get interrupted last week um, my uncle by the way is dying in a VA home in uh, Milledgeville, Georgia and a PCA pastor there named Craig Bryan. Um, he's visit he doesn't know my uncle. Doesn't know him. My sister reached out to him, and Craig told me he hopes that my uncle has put his faith in in Christ. And he told me the story, and and he said, You know, Nick, last time I saw your uncle, he he was so elated, he said, Craig, and and I said, That's awesome, he knows your name. And he said, Well, he should. I've visited him ten times. Y'all, I started weeping. This man didn't know my uncle, and he went to visit him ten times. Ten times. It's because his food is to do the will of the one who redeemed him. That's awesome. Now, I'm not saying you have to visit somebody ten times exactly. But our food must be to do the will of the one who ate his food on the cross to save us and to save those around us. And to finish his work, that he would finish his work, and that we would carry that out to others. And then I would ask you, are you eager to be an instrument in the hand of the Savior? He wants to use you. He doesn't need to use us, but he wants to use you. He wants you to be fruitful like this woman and like the Samaritans. Isn't that a comforting thought? That the Lord Jesus wants you to be useful and fruitful in his service. And then I'd ask you, and I'd ask all of us this morning, when we think about Church Creek, not about individuals, so not thinking what about him or her, but about our congregation, and and if we conclude that we are lacking any of those four life signs, we need to ask, are they there? Are they the dominant life signs? And if they're not, how can we be praying together that they would be? Um, We should be longing that we would be a congregation that longs to have Jesus with us, that longs to learn to trust him, that longs to be taught by him, and longs to tell others about him. Those are the marks of true spiritual revival. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning again to consider these things and to meditate on them and that the lord would enable us to see them manifested in our lives let him who has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the church let me pray for us father in heaven we are so thankful for this portion of your word we're thankful that you again cast our eyes on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That just as you sought the woman at the well, and just as you brought revival in Samaria, so you have sought us. We pray that you would revive us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that those life marks would be evident in our congregation. We pray that you would use us in your service, that you would make us fervent diligent that we would be longing to be instruments in your hand used for the salvation of those around us. Lord, we acknowledge that unless you do this, we would labor in vain. And so, Father in heaven, would you do a mighty and a powerful work in us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.